It was a really sad day in my young life. I was only in fourth grade, I was only 10 years old, and it was the first day of peewee football practice. Went out for peewee football practice. They had us do some drills and run some sprints, and, and that's when they made the big division. All the running backs, all the backs go over here. All the linemen go over here. All my heroes were running backs, Walter Payton, Tony Dorsett, Bo Jackson, my older brothers, they were running backs, but I was sent over to the linemen. Since I wasn't very big and strong, that only meant one thing, I was really slow. So, And I stayed a lineman, and I would never play anything but line, and I would never score a touchdown like Matt Jones did. So, but as I, as I grew older, I matured and like Solomon, I saw that under the sun, there were a lot of quarterbacks who were really good, who often found themselves on their backs underneath a very large defensive lineman because somebody wasn't playing their part. Somebody wasn't playing their role. Somebody wasn't playing their position. They had no one else who was, who was doing effectively what they were designed, what they were intended to do. I think in, in church, a lot of people think about spiritual gifts like 10-year-old boys. Think of them in very immature ways. They look at their own gifts and they only see immaturity. Uh, they only see insignificance. They look at their own gifts and they say, my, my gift doesn't matter. I, I don't get to go over here and do this thing. I don't get to, I don't get to stand on the platform. I don't get to, I don't get to do anything spectacular. My, my gifts and my role and my function, those are all, no, nobody pays attention to those things and those things are, are insignificant. Those things are not, not meaningful. Or there are those who look at other people as their, as if their gifts were insignificant, as if their gifts didn't matter. But what we see in the scriptures and what I hope will happen in your life is that, is that you will have a mature understanding of the gifts and functions that God has designed for people to play in the church. That each person is in the spirit who believes in Jesus Christ and each person has been given a gift. And there is a, a necessity that each person would contribute with their gifts for the health and the, uh, the life and the reproduction of the church. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to start with verses 12 and 13. And what I want you to see first is every part is immersed. Every part is immersed. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, every part is immersed. Read verses 12 and 13 with me. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see there, there's the connection there between verse 12 and what's gone before, what Paul has been talking about in verses 1 through 11 is how God designed uh, the body that, that all of these gifts that people have in the church, those all come from God. God has given to each part of the body a, a gift. He's given them a, a gift to be used for a certain function or a certain role within the church. And what he says there, he says, <clears throat> for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. As he's, he's going to go on from this point forward with this extended analogy. The, the church 
is like the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, he says there are many members. Members doesn't, members doesn't communicate very well. That's a very, that's a very good literal translation of, of the word there. But when we think of members, we, we don't talk, think of it as body parts, but he's really talking about body parts. We don't think about members except when we say someone is dismembered, and that's not a pleasant thought. So it's, it's body parts is what we're going to talk about today. Body parts. He's thinking of this body of Christ. That's the metaphor. And he says, so it is with a body, you've got one body. There's only one body of Christ. That's the church. But within the body of Christ, there are lots of different members. There are lots of different body parts with different functions and different roles. And so this is the way it is with Christ. And he just takes this analogy and he just teases it out and spreads it out. Before he gets into the analogy and kind of extends it, he says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, probably the best way to understand what it means to be baptized in the Spirit is through the symbol of baptism, through the metaphor they use. The, the word that's, that is translated as baptized there really just means to immerse or to plunge or to submerge someone. So baptism, the way that we practice, especially the way that we practice, practice it here, is a great symbol or metaphor for what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit is, is the water, like the water. And what we do here is that when a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, we plunge them beneath the water and the the water surrounds them and overwhelms them. Well, that's the picture of what it looks like to be baptized in the spirit. To be baptized in the spirit is to be overwhelmed or surrounded by and saturated with the spirit of God. When John the Baptist talks about baptism of the spirit for the first time in Luke Luke 3, he says, I baptize you in water, but speaking about Jesus Christ, he says, he will baptize you in the spirit and in fire. Well, what what John is talking about there and what he pictures there is that something very significant happens with the coming of Jesus Christ. With the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, something something incredible takes place. The, the Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament. We see him alluded to in various places and spoken of in various places. He, he unites people to Jesus Christ or to the Messiah by faith. Uh, he empowers particular individuals for ministry. But, but the difference between the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the Spirit's work in the New Testament is, is dramatic. When we think about, when we think about this idea of being plunged, it's the difference between being in a light sprinkle and being overwhelmed by a flood. What happens with the coming of Jesus Christ is he, he, the, the picture that is there in Acts 2 is of the Spirit being poured out, poured out in a, in a dramatic way that goes out to the people of God, that empowers them for ministry, that brings them to Jesus Christ, that converts them, that, that fills them, indwells them. And it is not only for a select few, but it is for all, from all nations, from all tongues, from all peoples who are trusting Jesus Christ. They are baptized in the Spirit. They are plunged into the life of the Spirit. Now then, lots of times, not, not only in, in Pentecostal theology, but also in many other uh, times and traditions, people have tried to, to separate the baptism of the Spirit into a, into a kind of second moment that happens in a person's life, or a, or a second blessing. Look at what Paul says. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Well, the, if we understand, I think especially if you look at the parallel there between that and verses 1 through 3, where it is, where it is those who are spiritual who profess Jesus Christ as Lord, 
the common experience that all Christians have is that of conversion. And so what happens when a person comes to Christ, when a person has faith in Jesus Christ, when a person is born again, when a person is indwelt by the Spirit of God, that person is baptized or plunged into the life of the Spirit. That's where we live. When you come to Jesus Christ, you live in the Spirit. That is, we, and I want you to understand, we are a Spirit-baptized church. You can go and tell that to all your friends. Make sure they don't misunderstand, but we are a Spirit-baptized church. We are a church that has been plunged into the life of the Spirit, where every single one of us who has believed in Jesus Christ are in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We do not quench the Spirit, but are filled with the Spirit. We wield the sword of the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are empowered for ministry by the Spirit. We are living everything that we do by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit has, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and we are living now by the Spirit of God. And you see the dramatic change that happens by, by who Paul says this applies to. So he says, all have been baptized, and then he says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Paul takes the two biggest divisions that he could think of in society in his time, and he says, all these people who believe in Jesus Christ are baptized in the Spirit. For a Jew like Paul, the biggest division in the world between human beings was Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And within that covenant, there were many regulations that acted as reminders and barriers that separated them out as the people of God that said, this people is the holy people of God. And so they lived, they were intended to live as the holy people of God. And in doing so, they would, they would be a kingdom of priests. They would bring blessing to all nations. Israel failed. Like Adam before them, as Adam uh, failed to obey God's command and was removed from, from the, the promised land of the Garden of Eden, so Israel, through its continual disobedience to God's commands, was removed from the promised land. It was removed from the land that God had promised. It was removed from Israel because it failed. But Jesus Christ, the true Israel, and the second Adam came and obeyed in the place of all who would trust in him, not Jews only, but also Gentiles. He was the true Israel. He was the one who went into the wilderness and conquered Satan, who did not bow down before false images, but instead rebuked Satan with the word of God. He is the one that in, in Luke 3 and 4 and 5, he is declared to be the son of God like Adam before him. He is the second Adam who lives faithfully. And, and in doing that, all Gentiles who would trust in him would be included in the one people of God. Many of those who are Jews believed in Jesus Christ. And so there is still this Jewish root. But then as Paul talks about it in Romans 11, Gentiles who by faith are grafted into the one people of God, they are included. They are all baptized in the one spirit of God. By his death on the cross, what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that the, the barrier of hostility was broken down so that they would be, out of the two, there would be one new man. And so when Paul says, when he breaks down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, that's the biggest division that he could possibly speak of. 
that means that he has broken down all divisions. So now for men and women who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are a part of the one people of God. For, for people of all races who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are part of the one people of God. People from all nations and all tongues who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are all part of the one people of God. They are all united. Now for Corinthians, the Corinthians, the biggest divide was between slaves and freedmen. The Corinthians were very class conscious and there was no, there was no better understanding or better distinction, uh, no, no more definitive distinction between people than are you a slave or are you a freedman? Are you somebody else's property or not? But Paul says, both you freedmen and all you slaves are all baptized in the spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of the divisions, even in society, even in culture, as they come in, as people come into the church, those, those divisions are undermined. And instead, God's people are unified. What I hope that we will pray for, for our church, is that, that there will be this kind of splendid unity in the spirit. That whenever people come and attend our church, whenever people hear about our church, where that, that our church will be a living testimony, that there are no divisions, no divisions based upon uh, Jew or Gentile, no divisions based upon class, like, like freed men or slave, no division based upon race, no division based upon socioeconomic level, no division for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That the Spirit of God binds people together as one. We see that, and you see there in verse 13 that there's a kind of metaphor sandwich. Okay, there's, there's a metaphor of being plunged into the Spirit on one side, and then on the other side, there is being made to drink of the one Spirit. Paul is alluding to the very same thing that he talked about in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, for he was talking about the nation of Israel. They were, by going through the Red Sea, they were all baptized into Moses, and they were all made to drink of the rock in the wilderness, who is, who Paul identified as Christ, that Christ is the one who provided for them. Well, here, Paul is saying, you are baptized into the one spirit. That there is, an, there is an escalation. There is a dramatic elevation of those who trust in Jesus Christ. That they are not baptized into, into Moses, but baptized into an everlasting covenant, a better covenant, into the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ. And we're made to drink of the one spirit. You can see Jesus talk about this very th same thing in John 7. He says, uh, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you water to drink. Water will come out of your hearts, living water. And John makes this editorial comment in speaking about this. He was speaking about the Spirit. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, are you thirsty? Are you spiritually thirsty? Come to faith in Jesus Christ and your thirst will be quenched. Speak to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. They will know a spiritual satisfaction that you don't know. But you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will know. You will know why it is that, that, the, that we can speak about the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Spirit. You will know what it is to have the Spirit and to cry, Father. You will know what it is for the Spirit to testify with your Spirit that you are a child of God. 
every day, every step, we walk with the Spirit, living in the life of the Spirit. Come to faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Him, and you will know the power of that life. You will know, you will know the satisfaction of that life. To know what it is to have God's very own Spirit living inside of you. Well, we see that all, every part, has been immersed or plunged into the life of the Spirit. Next, we see that every part is important. Every part is important. We're going to look at two paragraphs here. We'll start with verses 14 through 20 first. This is what it says. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul is just taking this, this imagery, this analogy they started out with of, of the church as Christ's body, and the body being one but having many members. And he first applies it to those who see their gifts as insignificant. One of the things that was happening in the church in Corinth was that there was an, there was an elevation of, of some gifts over others, especially speaking gifts, in some cases even a, a select few gifts or even one gift. And they were elevating that gift above other gifts. And, and Paul is, is speaking to those who, who kind of looking at that gift and they're saying, I, I'm not really even a part of the body. I'm not really a part of the church because my gift is not that gift. And he says, you're being silly. You're being ridiculous. You're being absurd. You're, you are, you're not understanding the wisdom of God. Listen, if, if, every, if I am not a hand, if the foot said, hey, I'm, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make them less of the party. Of course you're a part of the body. You're a foot. You're absolutely an essential part of the body. Or what if the eye said to the ear, or, or the ear said to the eye, I'm not, uh, I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. Well, where is the sense of hearing going to be? If every, every part was a sense of hearing, if the whole church was just this, this, just this one big ear, where would, where would be the sense of smell? Well, he's saying there in the church, there are all these different parts. There are all these different gifts. There are all these different functions. There are all these different roles. And those roles need to be done. Those roles need to be carried out. Those roles are very important. How can, how can you think that your role is insignificant? Your role is necessary for the health, for the life, for the reproduction of the church. The body, the body needs your gift. Now then, somebody could say, uh, well, I don't, I, I want that gift to, to really feel a part of the body. I really need that gift. You're just thinking foolishly. Well, why don't you let me go get the manager and he'll talk about it with you? Because what, if, what does Paul say? God himself composed the body as it exists. And what, it wasn't, listen, it wasn't the pastor's decision for you to, for you to fit in a certain role. 
It wasn't the pastor's decision that you received the gift. It was not something of your own doing that you received a certain gift. It is God who has determined all these things. It is God who has arranged the body in an orderly, wise way. Why, why would you rebel against that? Why would you, why would you, why would you want to flex your muscles and want to, want to bow up against God? Why would you say to God, my, you know, my job's not really as important as I would really like for it to be, so if you could really give me a different job. God says, I put you here. And until I move you someplace else, you're here. You do this job well. You play this role well. You use your gift here well. In obedience for the common good, is the way Paul said it earlier. And so he says, you look at all these things, and then he throws in this little thing at the end. He says, just, just for, just for, so you get an absurd image of what this looked like. If you, if, if all were a single member, where would the body be? She's got big hands, you got big, big noses, you know, you got, you got just, just this monstrosity of a church that all has, where everybody has one gift, where only one gift is valued, where only one gift is seen as significant. Just this monstrosity of a church. You've got Monsters, Inc. is Monsters Church. That's what we're thinking about. that's, That's so ridiculous. Don't think about your own gift as something that is insignificant. Don't think that your gift does not contribute. When you use it rightly, your gift contributes to the, to the, for the good of the entire church. And so do your job well. Use your gift well. Work at it. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. There are many different gifts, many different roles, many different jobs, and one body. Now, in the first paragraph, he addresses those who see their own gifts as insignificant. In the next paragraph, Paul addresses those who see other people's roles or gifts as insignificant. So pick up in verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our most more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, so you have some people who think of their job as insignificant or their role or their gift as insignificant. And then you have other people who are in the church who think of their gift or role or position as very significant. And they look down on those. They, they, they see those, those other people as unnecessary. Well, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. Every, every part of the body needs the other parts of the body. Those things are required. Those things are necessary. Look, even look at what he says. He says, on the, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I have a friend of mine who, who is, is often fond of saying that don't ever think of yourself as irreplaceable in the church. 
And that's a good thing to think about yourself. But when you think about other people, you should think about indispensable. When you think about other people, other people are indispensable. You cannot do the work without other people. I want you to think for a second about your liver. Your liver, you know, the, somewhere in there, you know, liver, okay? Nobody wants to think about their liver, you know? You don't have to think about it too long. You don't want to think about it. It's gross. It's, it's just, you ever see it? You ever go and buy the beef display? You got the liver there. It's just, for those of us who are uninitiated to organ meat, it's just not, not something we're excited about. Livers. But in your body, the liver is the largest single unified organ in your body. It detoxifies your blood. It produces bile for your digestion. It contains within it glycogen that you need for everyday energy. Without it, you would die quickly. You may not want to think about it. It may not be very presentable. You may think of it as something that you want to keep covered up appropriately. But it is indispensable. The body requires it. And so it is with people in our church. People in our church who don't have spectacular gifts, people in our church who don't have, who don't have spotlighted gifts, people in our church who do not have uh, very, uh, the, the gifts that, that we often see in front of other people. But those people are expressing their gifts and using their gifts in ways that are, that are necessary for the life of our church, for the life of any church. And look at the way that Paul says it. He says, they're indispensable, uh, those weaker parts of the body, uh, those that we think of as less honorable, we demonstrate greater honor to them. Those that we think of as, as unpresentable, we, we use them with, with greater modesty. So there's a, kind of, there's a kind of protectiveness about those who are weaker. And I think that what Paul, what Paul even says, he says, God, uh, there are some in the body who are more presentable. They don't require honor. But you show honor to those who lack honor so that there will be unity in the body. We, we have to go, I want you to get a sense, I want to suggest that we, we get a sense of going a little bit over the top in showing honor to those who lack honor. That we go just a little bit over the top. Sometimes, sometimes in order to really make people feel valued, you have to go over the top. A little bit. What feels to you like going over the top? But we should seek out those and make sure that they they get a sense of how valuable they are. And I want you to know, like like from the guy who's standing up here at the front, the the church does not exist without those who are contributing it to it to it every week in a variety of ways that you never see, that no one ever sees. There are people, there are people cleaning and, and doing music and there are people who are, are setting up sound and there are people who are repairing things and there are people who are making phone calls to people who weren't there or people who are hurt or people who are sick. There are people who are carrying around food. There are people who are in, in a, in a variety of ways contributing to the body of Christ, contributing to our church in a way it would never work. It would never happen. And so we show honor to one another. We look out for one another. And he says there, he says, the, the purpose is that there would be no division. And then he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. 
This is the idea of compassion. Community suffering, suffering with somebody else. Some of you, you ever broken a rib or, or really thrown your back out really badly? You'll know that if one little part of your body is hurt, the whole body suffers with it. In the same way, when, when one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice with it. You know, let's say you had somebody who won a race and they come and they, they, they run through the finish line and then you squat down and you congratulate their feet because their feet were so fast. That would be so ludicrous. We don't, ce- we don't celebrate, we don't honor their feet. We don't, we don't congratulate their legs. We congratulate the entire person. So it is in our church. When, when one person in our church rejoices, when any part rejoices, we all rejoice together. We are a body that has need of, of every part, that suffers when any part suffers, that, that rejoices when any part rejoices, who shows honor to every part. Let us, let us make sure that we are doing that. Make sure that we are even thinking that way. Let it begin with our thoughts and let it flow out into our actions that we value people. We value people of all, who have all kinds of different gifts and roles. It says we're, we're the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're all parts of the body of Christ. And then he goes in, he talks about, uh, I want to, the thing I want to emphasize here at the end is that every part is different. Every part is different. So pick up in verse 28. He says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work, work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, he lists these gifts. And he says there, look, look for a second in verses 29 and 30. He says, are all apostles? The implied answer is no. Do, are all prophets or all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. No, there is a... The same thing he spoke before in verses 1 through 11. He he makes it clear that the people have different gifts. Not everybody can have the same gift. It would not be a good idea if everybody had the same gift. We need different gifts. And he gives a list there in verses 28 and 29, uh, similar to the list that he's spoken about before. There is a little bit of something that is there that is distinctive. He says, and God has appointed the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. You can see that he designates by numbering them those first three gifts. If you, I want to, I want to show to you why he does that. If you'll flip over in your Bible to Ephesians four, Ephesians four, to verse eleven. And he's already said. All these gifts are indispensable. All these gifts are necessary. But there is a there is a kind of there is a kind of foundational nature or priority in the gifts of those that build up the church. So if you look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, 11 through 14, he says, 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, so to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, for craftiness, uh, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You can see there that, the, that in the church, if you look at apostles and, and prophets and teachers and evangelists and shepherds and, and, and all, all these different gifts, they are all ministries of God's word that are not, we should not think of them as those that are exalted above other gifts, but they are the ones that lead to the greater maturity of the body. They, they are a necessary part. They, they're like, they're like the mouth and the digestive system. So whenever you think of, you know, some great pastor, you think of him as like, like the small intestine, okay? So, so they, they, they are absolutely necessary. They, they in some way break down the food so that everybody can be nourished. That's what we're talking about here. There's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of firstness in that. You know, you don't want to have your, your jaw wired shut because then you wouldn't be able to, to take in God's word. Well, you want to, you want to have those who, who minister God's word so that the, the whole church is fed and the whole church grows up to maturity. Now then, you, you can kind of see there why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul numbers the apostles and the teach, uh, the apostles and the prophets and the teachers. The apostles are those who, by their witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church is founded, the church is built up. There were a select few apostles who, who had Jesus Christ appear to them after the resurrection and who were specifically appointed by Jesus Christ as witnesses to the church for the founding, the witnesses to the nation for the founding of the church. And so Paul can talk about in Ephesians 2.20 of, of the, the church being founded on the apostles. Also the prophets. The prophets were those who received divine revelation from God and spoke it to the congregations. One of the things that was happening in the time of, of Paul was that there were new, there were new redemptive events. And so, which required new explanations. And so the pattern that happens there is that for those, those churches to be built up, there had to be people within those churches who were receiving revelations from God to speak to the churches. They were explaining what had happened. Now then, I want you to notice a pattern here though, with the, with the, uh, and th then those who are teachers are those who take those things that are handed down by the apostles and the prophets and then take that body of teaching and teach it to others. Teachers don't have the authority of the apostles and they don't receive revelations like the prophets. Instead, they pass down the, the faith that is once delivered to all the saints. If you want to see this in Ephesians, turn back just one page and read Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The idea of mystery is something that was hidden in times past, but is now being made, being revealed because of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so you can see there Paul talks about 
Paul talks about a revelation being made to him that is given to the church. He also talks about it being revealed to the prophets. And so what happened was that God revealed an explanation for what he was doing in the world and a witness to what he was doing in the world through the apostles and prophets. Now then, this is the, pa- the pattern that we have in the scriptures is that what happens is that there is a new redemptive event, then there's a new explanation for that event, and then there is the writing down of that event in scripture. So take the Exodus. The Isra- Israel is led out of bondage in Egypt. It's a new redemptive event. God speaks to the people through Moses. That's new revelation. And then that revelation is recorded in the law. They go into the promised land, new event. You have Joshua, new revelation. And then you have new inscripturation. It's written down. Same thing, new events, the coming of the king, the building of the temple, exile and the return, all new redemptive events, new revelation about the meaning of those events, new inscripturation of those events. You get to the end of Malachi, up until the coming of Jesus Christ, 400 years. Do you know what happened then? There were no redemptive events. There was no new revelation. There was no new scripture. Then you have John the Baptist, who is distinctively recognized as a prophet in the wilderness. New events are happening. New revelation comes. And that revelation is written down in the scriptures. The reason why I bring that out is because I want us to recognize the relationship between apostles and prophets and teachers. Apostles and prophets were given for a time to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Prophets were there for, to give revelations of Jesus Christ. But there have been no new redemptive events. The next redemptive event is the coming of Jesus Christ. And after that, there will be no need for apostles and prophets because we will see him face to face. And so the, the question I want you to think about is should we anticipate or expect new revelations from God? Well, I'm not saying that God couldn't if he could. God, God can do whatever he wants. In, in Luke 1, God, God says, uh, Gabriel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And by that, he meant a virgin was going to give birth. That does not mean that I expect other virgins to give birth. So nothing is impossible with God. We're not, I'm not saying that, that God cannot reveal, make new revelations but we did not expect him to. Instead, what we have is the faith once delivered to all the saints. If you did your homework assignment this past week and read Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy all the way through, you see this transition from those with the authority of the apostles who are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see the prophets who, who were making revelations about the meaning of what had just happened. And now you see Paul speaking to a man who received the gift of uh, received a gift of teaching by prophecy, and who has then said, told to, I want you to teach people. I want you to train other men who can pass pass it down to other men. I want you to preach the word. All scripture is profitable for for uh, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. All these the, he says the, the the emphasis is much more on Timothy. I want you to be a teacher. And I want you to teach other men. 
And I want you to recognize these, these men who are going to be teachers. And you recognize who the teachers are today. Teachers today do not have the authority of the apostles. They do not receive divine revelation like prophets. Instead, what teachers do now is that body of teaching that has been revealed, teachers faithfully teach it to the churches. And only so much as as a teacher is faithful to the word of God as it is contained in Scripture, is there any hope of the body being built up or of a teacher being a faithful teacher? Study to show yourself approved. Study what? Study the Scriptures. Even Paul himself said, hey, when you come, bring, bring the Scriptures. Bring the books and the parchments. And so God's people are devoted to the scriptures that are inspired by the Spirit. And as those who are baptized in the Spirit, we have access and understanding of those and even giftings of people in the church who will teach it to us. Well, going back to uh, chapter 12, let, let's continue to look at those gifts that are there. We see gifts, of, then miracles, then gifts of healing. Uh, I addressed those uh, to, at some length last week, uh, but all I want to do for now is to recognize that in the early church, there were those who, were, who, had, who did signs and wonders uh, that testified to, that, that marked them out as witnesses in the name of Jesus Christ. And then you have these gifts that are mentioned there, gifts of helping and administrating. The idea of helping there, it, it's, it's, a, it's translated a little mildly there. It actually has connotations of someone who is like a, an expert administrative assistant. I mean, this is a, this is a project manager, someone who can do a lot of things. The idea of administrating there has the idea of one who can, one who can guide people over the long term, somebody who has wisdom to, to see ahead, not, not through divine revelations, but just as able in a, in a prudential way to see what's coming. Wow, we really need people like that in the church. I know that lots of times people will often grow weary of, of institutional church. But when you start gathering a lot of people together and you start maintaining a common building together, and you start exchanging money with one another, and, and uh, some is going to, to, to teachers, and some's going to widows, and some is going to, to, to take care of the, the common needs of the body, and, and all these things are happening, all these records are being kept. You know, Paul can talk about keeping lists of widows, and, and, and you think about everything that the, that the seven did in Acts 6, those who were first chosen to administrate, all that they did. I mean, there are, there are thousands of people who just came to faith in Jerusalem, and there's seven guys. I'm thinking those guys were, were gifted in administration. I'm just thinking. So they're watched, they're, they're able to do all these things. We really need people like that in the church, and we, we should pray for people like that. Uh, those seven who were chosen in Acts 6, they were indispensable because they made it possible for the teachers, the apostles, to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And I pray for that. I want you to pray for that too. And then he says there, uh, he, he gives some other gifts there. He talks about various kinds of tongues. And he lists that last. Uh, more than likely, that was the gift and, and with some understanding, you can understand why, why the Corinthians were enamored with speaking in tongues. That's what happened at Pentecost. That may have even ha- been what happened when they first came to Christ. 
So you can understand why they were enamored with speaking in tongues. But Paul probably puts it there at the end to demonstrate its relative insignificance compared to more intelligible gifts like prophecy. And then he finishes up with, uh, with verse 31. We looked at, looked at the idea that the answer is no, not, not everybody has these, these same gifts. They all have to be different gifts. Every part has to be different. You have, you have teachers in the church who are, who are teaching to mature the body, but, but they have to be, not everybody can be a teacher. That would be, that would be a very strange service. That would be a very unorganized service where everybody was on stage or everybody was on the platform all speaking at once. That would be, that would be ridiculous. It has to be, have to be those who carry out other jobs. Verse 31 is this transition to chapters 13 and 14. The first part, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I think when you get into chapter 14, by higher gifts, he means those that most contribute to the building up of the church. That's what he's already mentioned in chapter 12. That's what he'll reemphasize. Uh, he'll emphasize again in chapter 14 is that we want, we want, I want you to focus on those gifts that build up the church. And the intelligibility of prophecy is superior to the unintelligibility of foreign languages, languages that people don't understand. And so he wants people to desire the higher gifts, desire the gifts that are going to build up the church. And then the second part there is, I will show you a still more excellent way. And I, there he's going to transition into chapter 13. He's going to talk about love. What is the thing, what is it that guides us in, in exercising our gifts for the building up of the body? It's love. Love binds us together. Love Love is, love is the, the, the belt that binds God's people together. It is by us using our gifts in love. And so I want you to realize, here, here just to sum up, I want you to realize that, that every one of you who is trusted in Jesus Christ, you're baptized in the Spirit. You have been plunged into the life of the Spirit, and as such, you have a gift that is significant, a gift that is indispensable for the health, uh, for the life, for the reproduction of the church. We ought never despise our own gifts. We ought not, never despise anybody else's gifts. But instead, being guided by love. Pursuing those gifts that will most build up the body. Let us, let us strive to use our gifts for the common good. Father, uh, thank you for uh, your word. And grant that we would be active in showing love to one another, in, in showing honor to those who lack honor, in, in uh, practicing greater modesty for those who are, uh, for, for those whose gifts seem unpresentable, uh, but in every way we would value one another. We would see one another's significance. We would see your divine ordering of the body of Christ, that we all have a gift and we are all intended to use it for the common good. Help us not to be envious or, or discontent. Uh, help us not to be envious of other people's gifts or discontented with our own, but instead help us to exercise our own gift in our own place for our time. Help us to desire and seek those things that will build up the entire body, that will build up the church to maturity so that we will be built up into the, the head who is Jesus Christ. We rejoice in him. We rejoice that even now the Spirit helps us to pray. The Spirit uh, enables us to, 
to live the life that you have designed, that you have given us a new spirit, that your spirit testifies with our spirit, that we are your children, that we are sons of God. Grant us greater assurance. Grant us an assurance that will, will bring us joy, that we are baptized in your spirit, that we have been made to drink of the one spirit, that we are truly, genuinely spiritual because we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.